My name is Zach, and I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch. I want to welcome you to church this morning. You picked a great Sunday to be here. Uh, every Sunday is a great Sunday, in my opinion, but this is a great Sunday. Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, you made a great choice to be here today. And here's why. Did you guys hear those stories? Those testimonies, it's amazing. You and I live in an amazing generation to know and to follow Jesus. God is at work in our lives, as Joe said. God is at work in our city. And God is at work in the nations to save people, to heal people, to redeem people. And we just heard little stories of how God does that. A a guy going into college signs up for a summer job as a security guard. One of his first assignments, we were there week one of the summer, is to uh, be with this group who talks to him about Jesus. And he's like, I've been trying to figure this out. This is amazing, right? And he comes to the Lord. Think about the impact that that seed sown into his life could have on his campus, in his career, in his family, in his community. We heard a 10-year-old going around and praying for people. And here's some guy, incredibly devastating injury, trying to get across the border. And they're able to, God uses a 10-year-old to bring hope, to bring joy, to bring love to a guy that the rest of the world has forgotten about. Jesus is amazing. And then you hear a family from Chicago on vacation in Tijuana meets one of our, our team members the, 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 the wife and the sister aren't interested, but the husband is. And then that city's several million people. And they, we run into them again a couple days later. Like, think about Dallas. Like, you don't run into people again. Big cities, you just don't. Here we are, we run into them a couple of days later. And he's like, man, I just, I didn't know how to get to God. And I thought with all the stuff I've done in my past, there's no hope for me. But he finds out that there's hope. And that there's forgiveness. And there's life in Jesus. And think about the impact that will have on his life. Think about the impact that will have in his workplace. Think about the impact that will have in his marriage and with his son. It's amazing. God is on the move in our generation. And you and I get the opportunity to be a part. It is a great Sunday to be a part of the people of God. Now, Luke chapter 12, we've been learning how Jesus has stepped into our upside down world and is turning it right side up again. That he has come, and in him he is reshaping and reforming and renewing our vision of who God is. He's bringing who God is into clarity for us. And as we see who God is, our values are changed. And we've seen how Jesus leads us to value mercy and to value people. And how he leads us away from just building our lives on the love of money, but to put our trust in him and to live free. And he's changing the way that we see. Joe talked about that a few weeks ago, that we see differently. Last week, we saw that Jesus, the master who serves, transforms our view of leadership and our view of power. He's changing us. And he's changing the world. God, in Jesus, has stepped into our world to turn the upside-down world right-side up again. And that's what our parable today continues to build out that concept. And what we're going to see as we study today... Is that God, part of his plan to turn the world right side up again, is to end evil once and for all. To put an end to wickedness, to put an end to injustice, to put an end to things that steal and kill and destroy, and to establish life, and to establish righteousness, and to establish goodness, and establish truth. 
That's what we're going to learn about today. And I guarantee you're going to leave here, if you pay attention, you're going to leave here encouraged and inspired at the goodness of God for you. And you're going to be equipped to go into your week to have purpose and intentionality. That it's not just some people on a mission trip that get to be a part of what God's doing, but God's on the move in your home. God's on the move in your workplace. God's on the move at your campus. God's on the move at the summer camp you're at this week. God is on the move. And he's healing and he's redeeming the world. Luke chapter 12. I'd encourage you to open your Bibles, and we, we love to look at God's Word. We love to study it, so pull out your phone, pull out your smartphone, your dumb phone, your whatever phone. Uh, you've got Bibles in a seat back in front of you if you don't have one or if you brought one. Luke chapter 12, verse 39, Jesus speaking, and he says this. He says, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming... He would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, this, I think, is one of the more confusing parables that makes you scratch your head and stop and be like, wait, what, what does a house break-in have to do with anything? Right? And to just help us wrap our brain, get oriented to this this parable, an important thing for you and I to remember is that term son of man in verse 40 is Jesus' favorite term to describe himself. It is a title that he uses to describe himself over and over and over again. It's a term with a rich theological history, which we've talked about before in our Luke study. And when he's talking through this parable, he's talking about the son of man uh, coming, he's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. So let's read it again and replace Son of Man with Jesus. He says this, But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because Jesus will come at an hour when you do not expect. So it starts to come into a little bit more clarity. The next key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is that phrase, thief. The hour that the thief is coming. Remember in our last parable, Jesus was the master. In this parable, Jesus is the thief. In our last parable, we, humanity, were servants. In this parable, we're the master of the house. And so this idea of Jesus being a thief, it doesn't just show up here. It's actually a phrase that's used a number of times in the New Testament to describe Jesus in his return or his arrival. Let's look at one in 1 Thessalonians 5. It says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware, catch this, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's that same image, a thief coming in the night. And here it says, the day of the Lord will come. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, meaning suddenly, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And when this term thief in the night is used, it's connected, as we see here in 1 Thessalonians, it's connected to this idea of the day of the Lord. 
And so when Jesus is talking about the thief coming in the night, he's referencing a concept that's been with the people of God for many, many, many years, that the Lord was going to break into our world, was going to establish righteousness, was going to put down evil, and was going to release the things that lead to life. The first place that we see this in the Old Testament was when God delivered his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. He broke in and he defeated their enemies and he brought them out and he established them as a new people and gave them a vision for righteousness, gave them a vision for life. And they referred to it as the day, the day of the Lord, the day the Lord broke in. And as time passed and they faced new enemies and new oppressors and new evils, the prophets of God would begin to speak about another day, that it wasn't just a one-time event, but there would be a new day of the Lord where God would step in again and would set things right, that God was at work in our world to set things right. Eventually, though, interestingly enough, a prophet arises named Amos in the Old Testament, and he talks about the day of the Lord. But as he talks about it, he says the people that God's going to come against are not the Egyptians over there or the Babylonians over there. God is going to come against the people of God because the people of God have become corrupt. They're doing the same thing that their oppressors did. Now the ones that were oppressed are doing the same thing that the oppressors were doing. They're calling things that are wrong, they're calling them right. They're calling things that are right, they're calling them wrong. There's injustice in the land. There's wickedness amongst people who say they're the people of God. And God says, I don't show partiality. The day of the Lord is going to come against you. And we see that play out as they're sent into exile, as their empire is destroyed, as they go into being servants under the Babylonians. And then we see in the arrival of Jesus, we see this same language of the day of the Lord being used that God was breaking in to human history. We see it again used at the, re- at the crucifixion and the resurrection, the day of the Lord. But here we see another use, and that is the final day of the Lord. That there was going to be one day where God was going to step in and once and for all put evil to an end. He was going to establish righteousness. He was going to establish the kingdom of life, right? And that he was going to break in and bring evil to an end, the day of the Lord. So here Jesus is saying, he's saying, just like a thief comes in the night and the master doesn't know to expect it, so too will the day of the Lord come. I will return. And so it's important that you are ready. Now, if you're anything like me, you you probably have a very strange relationship with end times type thinking. I remember for me, and I want to share a few stories, and maybe one of these will connect with you. As a, as a 13-year-old, I went to a summer camp. It was a Christian summer camp where you played sports. So you play sports all day. They do a devotional Bible study in the night. And I remember vividly, it's the only thing I remember from the camp, other than playing sports, was this, that one night the counselor decided to go into a Bible study where he talked about the current events that were going on in our world and the different countries, and how these were all signs that the end of the world was coming and coming quickly. 
And he said, this nation, their symbol is this, and you can find that in the book of Revelation. And this nation, their symbol is that, and they're going to war, and that's what it's talking about here in this part of Revelation. And as a 13-year-old kid, I'm like, I haven't a clue. I'm just trying to figure out how to get girls to like me. I don't know about the end of the world and beasts and numbers. and So confusing. So I, I come back, and interestingly enough, uh, the school that I went to, it was a secular private college preparatory school. Secular private college preparatory school. It just so happened, though, that the campus of the school, they bought it from a religious group who had occupied it and built it out before. That religious group uh, was a group called the Davidians. If you remember David Koresh, like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Yes. So, as a junior high kid, I go into the school library and lo and behold, this is a good school. Like, this is like, you, people do well and whatever. This is a, a really good school, but it's just quirky. They have a, a, a stone clock carved in the floor that the Davidians did. And they referred to it as the doomsday clock. And it had the hour that the world was going to come to an end. So think, like, if you're a homeowner, think the people that owned your house before you move in and you find this, like, well, that's weird. So I remember as a junior high kid, I'm like, every time you go to the library, I'm like, huh, is that true? Like, how does that play out? Could that happen before I go to grammar class, please? Like, all of those things, right? It was just this weird relationship with, I don't even know what to do with that. Around that same time, David Koresh and, and the Davidians, they get into their conflict with the ATF just outside of my hometown. And I remember trying to figure out what was going on. And supposedly he knew, again, from Scripture, these seals that he knew that no one else knew. And, and that's why the world was about to end. And I was just really, really confused. I went to college, and I started out at a secular state school. And I was taking a film class. And the professor gave us a book for one assignment that we had that was a Christian book about the end of the world. And in this book, the guy knew the date and the hour that the world was going to come to an end. And I remember reading it, and of course the date had long since passed. And I was like, this is crazy. And then when I began to follow Jesus, I, I, I had friends that were really into this series of books called Left Behind. Any Left Behinders? And I, again, I was new to Jesus. I was new to all this. They awaited the next volume of that book to come out like a new chapter of Scripture was being delivered. And they would quote them and pour over. And again, I just have no clue. I'm like, this just feels so strange. I don't even know what to do with it. And if you're anything like me, which I imagine if you've grown up in Texas or really America, you probably have one of those experiences. And we read this and we start talking about this and your spidey senses start going off. Of like, oh, I don't know, you know. And, and honestly, as a, as, a, as a pastor and a preacher, I, I would have liked for us to just skip to the next parable because this is just, yeah, one of those where you're like, man, I'd like something easy, like go love your neighbor this week. That would be great. But I want us to dig in a little bit here because as I've taken time to really reflect on this, I realize that this idea of the day of the Lord, of Jesus' return, reveals to us the goodness of God in some incredibly profound ways. And that's what I want to point out to you today as we go through. Uh, I want to show you, just as we study together, a few things to consider 
when you hear about God's judgment, when you hear about the Lord returning and judging and things coming to an end, I don't want you to think about the main image that comes to my mind was this guy at, at my school who would go out in the student in the middle of the student union building, this quad area with a megaphone, and he would shout about how everyone was going to hell because they did this and that and the other and the end was coming. That's what I, what I think about when I think about the judgment of the Lord. But what Jesus reveals to us about the judgment of the Lord, the day of judgment, is that it is a day when God is stepping into a broken world, an upside-down world, and he's setting things right-side-up again. One of the main images that's used, it is a day of restoration, where God is going to restore that which is good. God is going to restore that which is just. God is going to restore that which leads to life. One of the biblical images is a day where the lion and the lamb will lay down together, right? Two things that don't go together, that are at odds, they're, they're, they're restored, they're reconciled. So when you hear Judgment Day, I want you to think, this is a day of restoration. This is a day where God, our God, says evil will be no more. God puts an end to evil. And he establishes goodness and righteousness and love. He comes against everything that stands in the way of life. He comes against everything that loves darkness more than loves light. And he's establishing life. He's restoring. The second thing that we see at the day of the Lord is that we see it's a day of revelation. When we see God's judgment, we see that God does not judge by external appearances. That's how you and I judge, right? And we get tricked by this all the time. There are people that appear one way in public, but in private, they're very, very different. They put on a face here, but really they're this way if you really got to the core. And we can't really see into people's hearts, but God can. And God looks at the heart, and the day of judgment is a day when truth will be revealed, one of the images that Scripture uses is that of a stone that you would test uh, gold or silver or diamonds with to see if they were real. And if the stone scratched the metal, then the metal was not real. If the, if the st- metal was not scratched, then it was like, oh, this is a genuine piece of gold. This is a genuine piece of silver. This is a genuine diamond, right? That's the day of the Lord. He's going to bring revelation. He's going to reveal what's really going on in our world. In addition to that, as he revealed, he's going to bring recompense. Now, this is where it gets a little weighty, where you're like, oh, I, okay, right? But this is so important, and it so demonstrates God's goodness. God is going to hold people to account for their actions. He's going to hold you and me account for our deeds, the life that we've lived, our words, our attitudes, and our actions. And when we think about that, that is the type of God that you want. Because that's the type of God that says that you and I are powerful people. You know who you don't hold accountable? You don't hold people that aren't powerful accountable. A tree fell on my neighbor's house in the storm recently. Huge tree fell on the house. You know no one was mad at the tree. But if a person had gotten drunk and it drove into, up into his house and up into the front of his house then you'd be like, man, that person needs to be held accountable for what they did, right? You hold people who have power, you hold them accountable. And it's like a really good thing. So what I want you to realize is that in recompense, what it's meaning is that you and I are powerful people. 
that you and I have power over our words. You are not a victim to just whatever emotion you may feel in the moment. We have power over our motives. We have power over our actions, both for good and for evil, right? And God cares enough about us, and he cares enough about justice, and he cares enough about goodness, and he cares enough about righteousness to step in and say, hey, I'm going to hold you accountable for the life that you live because you are a powerful person. And with the recompense, I want you to think less in terms of punishment and more in terms of protection. Less in terms of punishment and more in terms of protection. What God is saying in his judgment is that those who love darkness, those who love to steal and kill and destroy and call things that are right, call them wrong, and call things that are wrong, call them right. Those that love that more than love God's ways and God's kingdom of life, they will not be permitted to stay in the kingdom of life any longer because he's protecting life. He's protecting life. If someone comes into my house and starts harming my family, me telling them, you cannot be here, you need to get out, right? That's loving. That's restoring. That's protecting life. And that's what's happening at judgment. I want to encourage you to think uh, in terms of that God is giving people what they really want at judgment. Those who really desire to live apart from God, those who really desire to live apart from God's ways, those who desire to have their own standard of righteousness, say this is how we want to do life on our terms, right? On this day, God says, I love you. I have tried to restore you. I've tried to heal you. You have not wanted any part of me. So I'm going to let you have what you want. And that love for darkness is just going to grow and it's going to destroy you. Right? But God is going to do that because he's protecting life. And on that day, it's a day of reversal. Jesus said, many who are last will be first. Many who are first will be last. Those that are uh, high will be low. Those that are low will be high, which means there's going to be a lot of surprises on that day. Now, when Jesus starts talking about this, who's he talking to? He's talking to the people of God. He's not talking to a prostitute like this. He's not talking to a tax collector like this. He's not talking, in this case, to those who really knew and were aware of their sin. He's talking to people that have become religiously proud. And he was calling them to account. Jesus, when he relates to broken people, when he relates to humble people, when he relates to people who know their need for him, well, his topic is not judgment. His question is, will you let me heal you? Right? To people who don't know their need, he's trying to highlight, I want to help you see what you're not seeing. That there is a day that's coming. And I want you to be a part of the kingdom of life. But you have to make that choice and you have to follow me. So one pitfall that people can get into when we start talking about this, if you'll look in verse 39, it says that if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, then he could have been ready. And so sometimes Christians, in trying to uh, live this out, have really tried to dig into the supposed hour and knowing that hour at which the Lord is going to return. 
And, and I think some end times theology is helpful. I love having a discussion about it with you. But we can get into some really weird rabbit holes and get really distracted from the purpose that Jesus is telling the story for. When we get into, I think that, that I can take this scripture and I can use it to figure out it's a code that I can crack and I can find something that no one else has seen. And now I'm going to know that this person is really this and this time is really here. And you just get into weird places. Christians uh, throughout history, we've thought that John F. Kennedy was the Antichrist uh, because in the Democratic National Convention, he received 666 votes. So he was the Antichrist, and when he was assassinated, there was a belief that he was going to rise from the dead because just like the beast had received a mortal wound and was going to rise again, uh, people have thought that the credit card company Visa is the Antichrist because you could take the letters in Visa and correspond them to numbers, and they would add up to 666. Same thing with Hitler, but you had to leave out a letter on Hitler to make it work, but that's neither here nor there, right? That's the Antichrist. Computers were another one that I found because you could do that with the word computer. And some, some group found that if you take your social security number and your zip code, that that system somehow adds up to 666 and it's the American government that is the Antichrist, right? It's just like, whoa, I, I, is that why Jesus is telling this parable? For us to try and spend our time figuring that out? No. Actually, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples, it's not up to you to figure out the time and the season that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Your job is to go and be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in your hometown, in Judea, in your neighborhood, and in the nations of the earth. To go and be a witness, to be about the kingdom, to be the people of Jesus. It's not to sit around and argue about what day is this going to happen or that going to happen. It's to go and be a witness. In Matthew, Jesus says, and I don't even know how this works, he says, that on speaking of that day, the angels in heaven don't know when it is. He said the Son doesn't even know when it is. God the Father is the only one who knows. So if Jesus is saying you and I are not going to figure it out, and he's saying the Father is the only one who knows, I think we can take that and say, you know what? We're not going to figure it out. And that's not the purpose of this. That's not why he's telling the story. He says next in verse 40 what the point is. He says, you must also be ready. The point of knowing that there's going to be a day of the Lord, a day of judgment, is that you and I would live ready. And if something is going to happen when you don't know when it's going to happen, it means you can't just say, well, I'm going to put that off until about two days before the day of the Lord. No, it means you need to embrace the readiness now to live out your faith. So then, well, what does it look like to be ready? And again, we've gotten into some really weird places with this, right? You might be thinking, okay, does this mean I need to go out after church, dig some sort of bunker in my backyard, go to Costco, buy bottles of water, buy cans of beans, stockpile guns, and get ready because everything is going down. Is that what it means to be ready? No. Jesus goes on to say the next parable, which we'll look at in a few weeks, he goes on to say Faithfulness or readiness looks like being faithful to live out his purposes. In Matthew chapter 24, the same parable is there. And then in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells this is what it looks like to be ready. It's faithfulness in a household, being faithful. It is uh, using your talents that God has given you, not for your own glory, but for his glory and the good of others. It's how you use your gifts, how you use your talents. 
It's, it's loving and caring for the poor, the prisoner, and the stranger, the outcast, the, the refugee, however you would define caring for the poor. This is what it looks like to live ready. This is the way that we're supposed to embrace this, not to go down uh, some debate trail of how it's all going to work out, but to actually step in and be the people of Jesus, to be faithful, to invest well, to love mercy, to love the poor, to love the prisoner, to love the stranger. And that's what it looks like to live ready. So I want to talk about a few implications of how this connects to us, and, and maybe even in a greater way. This is happening whether you and I realize it or not. This is happening whether you and I get on board with it or not. But I don't know about you, but I, I want my life like, to matter and to be a part of the story that God is working. And because you're here, I bet you do too. So what are the implications for our lives? Number one, your faithfulness matters. Your faithfulness matters. Because it is a demonstration. God says this is a demonstration of what it looks like to be ready. And it's not this grand act of faithfulness we'll see next week. It's in a household. That means if you are a, a mom and you're changing diapers, or you're a dad and you're changing diapers, that matters. If you are a kid at school and you make a choice to open up your lunch table and not kind of push whoever doesn't look like you or talk like you or dress like you or smell like you over to the other table, but you make room for them, that matters. When you're at work and you say, you know what, I'm not going to go based on appearances, although this is what my office does. I'm going to go based on what is integrous according to God's standards. That matters. It matters. And you can see if the people of God begin to live this out, how the world would be transformed. Uh, when you have a standard, when you realize that there is a standard of judgment, of righteousness, that's higher than your opinion or mine, your generation or mine, that's higher than this news channel or that news channel, right? There is a standard of authority. It puts us in a good place. Because in this parable, we're acting like we're the master, but really Jesus is the master, right? You and I don't have the power to determine right and wrong. God himself is the one that says, this is right, this is righteous, this is good, and this is injustice. So when you have that, uh, just as an example, in relationships, I'll just say for, for me and my wife, I didn't fill her in on this, so I hope it's okay. But, but this has been something that we've come back to over and over and over again. When we're trying to make decisions, when we're trying to talk through things that we don't understand each other on, instead of it just being like, well, this is my opinion and I'm going to try and win the day with the most persuasive argument. And this is your opinion and you're going to try and win the day with the most persuasive argument. And it's just up to us to decide. It's like, no, God, what is your way? What is your way? And we want to go that way because that way is the way of life. We've used this when we're making big decisions. When we've been praying and it's not clear like exactly what we're supposed to do, we've made major life decisions saying, on the day of judgment, what do we believe is going to honor God and reflect the way of Jesus? We made major life decisions. And it's so good. It's so good. It's so freeing not just to try and need to figure everything out on your own or to try and define your own terms of right or wrong or to get swayed because CNN says this is right, but really it's wrong. And Fox says this is right, but really it's wrong. You have a standard that is steadfast and sure that you can stand with and be confident with. 
And it reveals the goodness of God, so it should inspire our worship. Because we have a God so good, he stepped in to put an end to evil. He stepped in to call injustice to account. And there's going to be a day, once and for all, where it is forever turned right side up. Again, he's that good. So someone asks you, man, how can you worship? How can you believe in God? There's so much evil in the world. You say, you don't understand my God. He has stepped into our world, and he is turning an upside-down world right side up again. And the question is, are you and I going to be a part of that restoration project? Because God is on the move in our generation. I want to invite you to stand. As we close, uh, you might be in here and you are like um, uh, the gentleman from Marshall's testimony. I I just blanked on his name. Say again? Brandon. And you may be like, I feel like God's been trying to open my eyes to him. And I just haven't known, I haven't really understood, but, but, but as we're talking about this, uh, I realize I need Jesus. Or maybe you're like Tony from Chicago, where you're like, I've got some things in my past that I just, if God counted those things, there's no way he'd want me. So I just want to point out to you that this same Jesus who's coming to judge loves you and me so much that he went to the cross on our behalf. For whoever, like you or me, would look to him, or any person on the planet that would look to him, it says that he bore our sin in his body. That God made he who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great reversal. Where you and I can let Jesus take our sins off of us. And give us in its place new life and hope and righteousness and forgiveness. That's what Jesus offers to you and to me. He loves you that much. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, I need Jesus. Maybe it's for the first time. You've never made a decision to follow him. Or maybe you've been away for a long time. You grew up in church and you got off track somewhere and you're trying to make your way back. I say this every Sunday. God's not waiting for you to get your act cleaned up to come to him. He's running down the road pursuing you, and he's brought you here today, and he wants to restore you. He's asking you, will you let me heal you? Will you let me heal you? So if I get everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes, if that's you, if you're, if you're, if you're like, I need Jesus, I need to make him the Lord of my life, or if you've been away for a long time and you're trying to come back, I want to invite you to raise your hand. We're not going to call you up on stage or put your name on a billboard. This is an opportunity for you to respond by faith. And again, every head closed, or every eye closed, every head bowed. If that's you, if you just put your hand up in the air, I want to pray a short prayer with you. All right, I'd like to ask everyone to join with me in this prayer. You can just repeat after me. Jesus, you are so good. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you are turning an upside-down world right-side up again. I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your life. I need your leadership in my life. I commit to follow you all the days of my life and live for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. We're going to take communion now. As the officiants come forward, they'll have the bread and the cup. And when you're ready, uh, the worship team will be leading us in worship. You can come forward and take the bread, take the cup, return to your seat, and remember Jesus' great love for you. And this is an opportunity for you to recommit yourself afresh this week to him.
now.